Amazon Books, your weekly program about great reads through book talks, trailers, and first chapters. Presented by Mrs. Winningham and Mrs. Kovach. Hi, this is Mrs. Kovach. Today I'll be reading from The Eleventh Plague by Jeff Hirsch. Sometimes the only way to survive is to keep moving. America is a vast, desolate landscape left ravaged after the brutal war. Two-thirds of the population are dead from a vicious strain of influenza. People called the sickness the 11th plague. 15-year-old Stephen Quinn was born after the war and only knows life as a salvager. His family was amongst the few who survived and took to roaming the country in search of materials to trade. But when Stephen's grandfather dies and his father falls into a coma after an accident, Stephen finds his way to the settler's landing, a community that seems too good to be true. There, Stephen meets Jenny, who refuses to accept things as they are. When they play a prank that goes horribly wrong, chaos erupts, and they find themselves in the midst of a battle that would change settler's landing in their lives forever. Part 1. I was sitting on the edge of the clearing, trying not, trying not to stare at the body on the ground in front of me. Dad said that we'd be done before dark, but it's been hours since the sun went down and he's still waist deep in the hole, throwing shovels of dirt over his shoulder. Even though it's covered in a, bur bur a burlap shroud, I can still see how wasted Grandpa's body was. He'd always been thin, but the infection had taken another 10 pounds off of him before he went. His hands fell out from a tear in the burlap. Shadowed from the moonlight, it was a desert plain, the tracks of the veins like a dry riverbed winding up the cracks of his knuckles. A gold marine core ring sat on his finger, but it barely fits anymore. Dad shoveled shoot through the rock and clay with an awful scrape. Finally, I couldn't stand it anymore and escaped into the thicket of trees that surrounded us, stumbling through the darkness until I came to the edge of the hill where we were camped. Far below was the slouching ruins of an old mall, Rows of cars resting in the moist air sat in the parking lot, still waiting for the doors to open. Beyond the mall, the arches of a McDonald's sign hovered like a ghost. I remember seeing it the first time ten years ago. I was five, and then the sign had towered in its red and gold plastic. It seemed gigantic and beautiful. One trillion served. Now fingers of vines crept up its base, slowly consuming more and more of the rusty metal. I wondered how long it would be until they made it to the top and the whole thing finally collapsed. Ten years, twenty. Would I be dad's age, grandpa's age? I took a deep breath of cool air, but the image of grandpa's hand laying there on the ground loomed in the back of my mind. How could it be so still? Grandpa's hand only made sense in motion. Rearing back, the gold ring flashing as it crashed into my cheek. He had so many rules, I couldn't even remember them. The simple act of setting up camp was a minefield of mistakes, and Dad and I both seemed to trip over every one. I could still feel the sting of the metal and the rasp of his callous skin, but that's over, I told myself. We're on our own now. Grandpa's fist was just another bit of wreckage we were leaving behind. Stephen! My chest tightened. It wasn't cold enough for a fire, but I didn't want to go back to nothing to do, so I collected an armful of wood and, brushed, and brush on the way. I dropped it between our sleeping bags and then leaned over the tender, scraping the two pieces of my fire starter together until a spark caught. Once I had a proper campfire, I sat back on my heels to watch it burn. Think it's cheap enough yet? Dad was leaning against the wall of the grave, his body slick with sweat and dirt, and I nodded. Come on then, bring the ropes. Once I helped Dad out of the hole, we knelt on either side of Grandpa's body and drew the length of the ropes under his knees and back, and Dad started to lift him, but I didn't move. 
Grandpa's hand, one finger crowned in gold, was only inches from me. What about the ring? The ends of the rope were limp in Dad's hand. The ring, the ring glinted in the firelight, and I knew this. he stung from it just like I did. There's got to be a, a half an ounce of solid gold there, I said, if not more. Let's just do this. But don't we have to? Stephen, now, Dad snapped. We lowered Grandpa into the grave, and then before I could even pull the ropes out, Dad began filling it in again. I knew I should stop him. We had, we could have traded Grandpa's ring for food, new clothes, even bullets. Dad knew that as well as I did. And when the grave was filled, the shovel slipped from Dad's hand, and he fell to his knees, doubling over with his arms around his stomach. His body seized with small tremors. Oh, God, don't let him be sick, too. I reached out. Dad? When he turned, the light caught tears cutting channels through the dirt on his face. I turned towards the woods as he sobbed, giving him the privacy I could, and not twisting tighter and tighter inside me. When he was done, I laid his favorite flannel shirt over his shoulder. Dad drew it around him with a shaky breath and then searched the stars through red swollen eyes. I swear, he exhaled, exhaled, that man was very hard to deal with. Maybe we should put that on his tombstone, I said. Dad surprised me with a short explosive laugh. I sat beside him, edging my body alongside the steady in and out of his breath. He draped his arm, exhausted over my shoulder. It felt good, but still the knot in my stomach refused to unravel. Dad? Yes, Steve? We'll be okay, won't we, without him? When Dad said nothing, I moved out from under his arm and looked up at him. I mean, nothing's going to change, right? Dad fixed his eyes past me and onto the dark trail we would start down the next morning. No, he said his word, rising up like a thin ghost. Nothing's ever going to change. Chapter 2. We clawed our way out of our sleeping bags just before sunrise, greeted each other with sleepy-eyed grumbles, and got to work. I dealt with Dad ba Dad's backpack first, making sure the waterproof bag inside was intact before loading in our first aid kit and a few matches we had left. I did it carefully, still half expecting to hear Grandpa's voice exploding behind me as he wrenched the bag out of my hand and showed me how to do it right. I paused, breathed. He's gone, I told myself. I reached back in and felt for our one photograph, making sure it was still there, like I did every morning, and then moved on. As I arranged the clothes in my pack, my hand hit the spine of one of my books, The Lord of the Rings. I'd found it years before in a Walmart, buried beneath a pile of torn baby clothes, and the dried leaves had, had that had blown through the walls had fallen. It read, I'd read it start to finish six times, always waiting until after Grandpa went to sleep. He said the only thing books were good for were being kindling for a fire. I flipped through the book's crinkled pages and, and placed it at the very top of the bag so it would be the first thing my fingers touched when I reached inside. Doing this gave me a rebel thrill. I didn't have to worry about Grandpa finding it now. When I went for water, because I needed to water our donkey, Polo, I found Dad staring down at something in the back of the wagon, Grandpa's hunting rifle. It was lying right where he left it two days earlier when he, it be, he became too weak to lift it anymore. Dad reached down and read the tips of his fingers along the rifle's scarred body. So this is mine now. He lifted the rifle into his arms and he slid the bolt back. One silver round laid there sleek and deadly. Guess so, I said. Dad forced a little smile as he hung the rifle from his shoulder. I had to figure out how to work it then, huh? He joked, a dim twinkle in his eyes. Come on, pal, let's get out of here. As Dad started down the trail, I turned for a last look at Grandpa's grave. How many such mounds had we seen as we walked from one end of the country to the other year after year? Sometimes it was one or two at a time scattered 
like little misplaced things. Sometimes there were clusters or hundreds or thousands littering the outskirts of dead cities. It was so hard to believe his death would have come so quickly. After all, he survived the war, the collapse, the chaos that followed to be taken by what? An infection? Pneumonia? The flu? We had no idea. He was like a thousand-year-old cloak, scarred and twisted, that was somehow chopped down in a day. It made me feel sick inside, but some part of me was glad, like we'd been freed. I was about to ask Dad if he wanted to make some kind of marker before he left, but he was already moving on down the trail. Come on, P, I said, tugging on to Paula's lead and guiding him along the way. The sun rose as we moved off the hill, pushing some of the chill out of the air. We passed the mall and crossed the highway. On the other side, there was a church with a blackened wreck of an army truck sitting in front. Besides, there were tracks of abandoned houses, their crumbling walls and smashed windows reminding me row after row of skulls. It was almost impossible to imagine the lives of people who lived and worked in these places before the collapse of the world. The word star started five years before I was born, over nothing really. Dad said a couple of American students were backpacking in China were caught where they shouldn't have been and been were, were mistaken for spies. He said it wouldn't have been a big deal except that all around the same time the oil was running out and the earth was getting warmer and a hundred other things was going wrong. Dad said everyone was scared in that the fear made the world into a huge pile of dried out tinder and all it needed was a spark. Once the fire caught, it didn't take much more than a couple years to reduce everything to ruins. All that survived were a few stubborn stra stragglers like us holding on by our fingernails. We made it through what was left of the town and then came to a wide run of grass framed by trees and leaves that had begun to turn from vivid shades of orange and red to muddy brown. We shifted east and then dropped into a steady pace we maintained until it was time to jog south for the final leg. We're going to be fine, Dad said, finally breaking the silence of the morning. You know that, right? The knot from the previous night tightened my throat and I swallowed it away and said that I did. The hall isn't too bad. Dad continued, glancing back at the wagon, which was filled with a few pieces of glass and some rusted scrap metal. And hey, who knows? Remember the time we came across the stash of Star Wars stuff? And where was it? Columbus? Maybe we'll wake up tomorrow and find, I don't know, a helicopter in perfect working order, gassed up and ready to go. Casey'd probably like that more than a bunch of old Star Wars toys. Well, who knew the little nerd preferred Battlestar Galactica? Casey, or General Casey as he likes to call himself, was the king of the Southern Gathering. His operations sat atop of what was once called Florida and was where Dad and I traded whatever salvage we, we, we found like things that, for things that we needed, like clothes and medicine and bullets. We still got 10 pairs of socks out of it, I said. How many do you think we would get for a helicopter? What are you kidding? We wouldn't trade it. Not even for socks? Heck no. We'd become freelance helicopter pilots. Imagine what people would give us to take a ride in that thing. Dad shot his fist in the air. It'd be a gold mine, I tell you. Dad laughed and so did I. It was a little forced, but I thought maybe it was like a promise, a way to remind ourselves that things would be okay again. It grew warmer as the morning passed, and around noon we settled into a dilapidated park bench and pulled out our lunch of venison jerky and hardtack. Paolo munched nearby, the metal bits of his harness tinkling gently. Dad grew quiet. He took a few bites and then stared west into the woods. Once I was done eating, I pulled a needle and thread out of my pack and set to fixing the tear of the elbow on my sweatshirt. You should eat, I said, drawing the needle through the greasy fabric and pulling it tight. Not hungry, I guess. A flock of birds swarmed across the sky, calling loudly before setting on the power lines that ran like a seam down our path. I wondered if they were able to do that before the collapse, back when electricity actually moved through wires. 
And if not, which brave bird had been the first one to give it a shot once the lights had all gone out? Distracted, I let the needle lance into my fingertip, and I recoiled and sucked on it until the blood stopped. I heard Grandpa's raspy voice. Pay attention to what you're doing, Stephen. It doesn't take a genius to concentrate. I leaned back over the sleeve, trying to keep the stitches tight like Mom had taught me. I keep expecting to see him, Dad said, to hear him. I pulled the thread to stop and look over my shoulder at Dad. Was he different, I said. Grandpa, was he different before? Dad leaned back his head and peered into the sky. On the weekends, he'd take us to the movies. He worked a lot, so that was our time together. We'd see anything, and it didn't matter. Stupid things. It wasn't about the movies. It was about us being there. But then everything fell apart, and your grandma died. And I guess he just didn't want to live through the pain again. So he became what he thought he had to be to keep the rest of us alive. And even though it was still fairly warm out, Dad shivered. He wrapped his coat around his arms and tied around his body and then stared at the ground and shook his head. I'm so sorry, Steve, he said, a tired quiver in his voice. I'm sorry I ever let him. It's okay, I said. I snapped the thread with my teeth and yanked on the fabric and held. Good enough. I slipped the sweatshirt on and zipped it up. You ready? Dad didn't move. He was focused on a stand of reedy trees across the way, almost as though he recognized something in the deep swirl of the twigs and the dry leaves. When I looked up, I saw it was a rough a rough path, barely wide enough for a wagon. You find that helicopter? Dad's shoulders rose and fell as he let out a little puff of breath, the empty shape of a laugh. Better get going then, huh? We can start south here. There were heavy shadows like smears of ash under Dad's red rim eyes as he turned to me, and for a second it was like he was looking at a stranger. Then he pulled his lips into a grin, slapped me on the knee. Reckon so, partner, he said as he lumbered up off the bench and hung the rifle over his shoulder. Reckon it's time to get down the road. I gave the donkey's lead a pull, and we started to move. Dad hovered by the bench, staring back at the path west, almost hungrily, his thumb tucked under the rifle strap. I stayed the donkey and waited. What was he doing? But then in a flash, it was gone, and Dad shook his head, pulling himself away from the other path and joining me. He ruffled my hair as he passed by, and we began what would be the last leg of our yearly trip south.